So this morning, uh, we continue our study in Bibliology by beginning to look at the third of the four characteristics that are commonly associated with this topic. Uh, so far, we've looked at the authority of Scripture and the clarity of Scripture, and this morning, we begin looking at the necessity of Scripture. And uh, this will take two, two sessions to, to go over. So as we begin this study, uh, I want to start by asking a few questions that we'll seek to address over the next couple weeks. And the questions are somewhat formulated like this. Do we need a Bible or do we need to have someone tell us what the Bible says in order to know that God exists? Do we need a Bible to know that we are sinners who need to be saved? Do we need it to know how to find salvation? And do we need it to know God's will for our lives? So we'll, we'll seek to address those questions over the next couple weeks because all of those questions are massively important because they deal with every person and their eternal destiny. So these aren't just academic questions. These are questions that pertain to the eternal welfare of mankind. So they're vitally important for us to, to, to answer. So let's begin by thinking through the implications of those questions. And how we're going to do this this week is we're going to look first at what the Bible is not necessary for. And then next week, Desmond will pick up and tell us what the Bible is necessary for. So that's the first point there on your notes. The Bible is not necessary for knowing that God exists. As humans, we can obtain a knowledge, actually we have a knowledge innately built into us that God exists. And we also have a knowledge of some of his attributes, not necessarily all of them, but some of them. And we know this simply from observing ourselves and the world that is around us. So a popular passage as we think about this, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. And notice the personification here that's given to creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Okay? So there's a, an excellent example of the testimony of creation, right? Singing loudly about not just God, but notice here, the glory of God, right? That, this, that there is a God and he's glorious. So we have this universal proclamation by creation that there is a God and that he is glorious, that he has infinite power, that he's wise, and even that he's beautiful, right? He has beauty with, within himself. 
And I think we can all testify to that, right? Oftentimes you'll see somebody post something on social media, maybe a sunset or something like that. Look how beautiful this is. And, and we take opportunities to look at creation around us and say, look at the glory of God that we see within creation. I remember when Sabrina and I took a vacation a, a few years back, we went over to Siesta Key. And uh, going over onto the west coast of Florida, it's such a treat because you get to see just these gorgeous sunsets. And it was one of those sunsets with virtually no clouds in the sky, right? So you're just watching it go down. It's changing all kinds of different colors as it, as it goes down. And, and right as it goes down past the horizon, people break out in spontaneous applause. It was, it was amazing. It was just like you are, we were there to worship. Now, we know that we don't worship correct, correctly, right? We, we worship the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. But there's that, that uh, innate characteristic that we have within us that that is worthy of praise, right? Nobody had to say, okay, the sun's about to set on three. Everybody start clapping, right? No, everybody just instantaneously started applauding. And that, that this passage just came to mind so quickly when I heard that applause is creation is testifying. It's pointing to this God that is and that is glorious as he has been seen. And I'm sure we could go around the table and all of us could probably testify to something like that. You've seen the glory of God in creation. And as we see the glory of God in creation, we, we know this even as unbelievers, but maybe this is true for you also. When, when you became a Christian, you're seeing things properly now. You, you still say that's a glorious sunset, but now you go beyond the sunset to the one who created the sun and made it set, right? Uh, you begin to look at things so much differently as a believer, right? I remember when I first got saved, I'm like walking past flowers. I'm like, these are beautiful. Why have I never stopped to look at these and think of the intricacy and how it's made and how God designed these things and a bee flies by and you're like marveling at that and then just all over, right? I mean, just creation is testifying to the wisdom and the glory and the power of God. So this is a helpful passage that shows us that the Bible isn't needed for that because God has created us in such a way that we know that he exists. There's a similar passage that testifies to creation's proclamation of God's existence in Acts 14, verses 16 and 17. Somebody like to read that for us? Past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Okay, so again, that's a great... A great passage here. Paul is testifying here and speaking uh, to, to the Gentiles. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, right? So the Gentiles, they didn't have what Israel had, right? They didn't have the oracles of God and the covenants and the promises and the special revelation of God given to them. But here's verse 17. Yet, this doesn't excuse them, right? He did not leave himself without witness, and so the question then is, how? How did, how did he testify to himself? How did he witness to himself? He did so by giving you rains from heaven. 
and fruitful season, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So those rains and fruitful seasons, uh, the earth producing food, gladness in people's hearts as they enjoy what God has provided, all of this bears witness to the fact that there is a God. So these evidences are all around us in creation. And even those who by their wickedness suppress the truth that God exists cannot avoid the evidences of his existence in the created order. And this is what Paul hits on in Romans 1, which is kind of a parallel passage that we turn to when we think about the sufficient witness of of creation. Somebody want to read that for us? Thanks, Des. So I want you to notice here what what Paul is inspired to say. Not only that creation gives evidence of God's existence and character, but also that all men recognize that evidence. This goes back to a lesson when somebody asked about, you know, proving to people that God exists. This is why I don't spend a lot of time talking about that issue. Because they know. Verse 21, for all they, although they knew God, there's a, there's a knowledge of God that is happening here. Notice verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them. Right? That word plain there means apparent. It's apparent to them. It also means manifest. God has manifested it to them. As it says here, he's shown it to them, right? He's put it on display. His invisible attributes, his, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, right? So you get this picture of creation screaming that there is a God and he's powerful and mighty and wise. It's clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, right? So this is not just like, well, since the advent of technology and us being able to go up into outer space and see things a little more clearly, now people are accountable. No, since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And then the conclusion there, so or therefore, they are without excuse. So creation is the sufficient witness of God's existence. There's, there's no ambiguity. I hope that's kind of what you get from this language here, right? There's, it's not kind of muddled up so that we can't see it, right? There's no ambiguity in creation's testimony. Man has clearly perceived or clearly seen the existence of God through the created order. The problem with it, and then I'll come over to you, George. The problem with it is man hates what he sees. And therefore, as said right before in this passage here, he suppresses that truth of God that he knows from creation in unrighteousness. 
That, that's the issue. There's that suppression. There's the knowledge of that truth and the suppression of that truth. The natural man has a knowledge of God and naturally suppresses that knowledge because he loves his sin and he does not want to submit to God. George. I was just, I just want to emphasize the point that they know it so much so yes. that they're doing something with it and they're suppressing mm-hmm. it. Amen. It's the beach ball in the pool, right? It's like, I know that beach ball exists. I'm going to push it down underneath, but it keeps trying to surface, and we keep trying to, trying to push it down through each thing, right? Another thing comes about, push it down. Another thing comes about, push it down. And then you get into Romans 1 a little bit here further, where it gets very scary in the sense of God popping the beach ball, so to speak, and letting it go down. So even without the Bible, all persons have the evidence of creation declaring to them that God exists, that he is the creator, and they are creatures, and have also had some evidence of his character. As a result, they themselves have known something about God from this evidence. Now, it's never said to be evidence that is sufficient to bring them to salvation, We'll get into that next week. Um, But it is sufficient to testify that there is a God and that he exists and he's wise and powerful. Okay, any questions? Go ahead. Yes. right yeah and and that's and that's what Paul says in that passage he says although he is not very far from from each of us so yeah that was more of your word to this unknown God here that you haven't figured out yet let me testify to him this is the one right this is this is the one and to your point the fact that we have all of these religious systems set up and set up in a sense of a sacrificial manner in some way that, that's innate within us. We're built to worship. We worship the wrong thing. We know we're guilty because our conscience condemns us. We'll get into that here in a second. So we know we need to do something to appease God, whoever this God may be. So yeah, that, that passage there in Acts 17 was a clarification of this unknown God that you're, that you're worshiping. Yeah. All right, any other comments, questions? You guys can chime in from experiences that you've had maybe also. Will? Um, a lot of um, atheists or agnostics will say, oh, even if we know God exists, yeah. you know, we don't know anything about him. He's just kind of this mysterious being that yeah. everyone has different opinions from. It's like, yeah. but yeah, even from these verses, it says that his nature is, is made clear to them, not just yeah. that he's there, but yes. that we do know that you know, he's divine, that he is eternal, and all those different things. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Jay? Actually, I actually didn't know when you were talking that you just rewrote the foreword from our book. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. The creation. Yeah.
anybody would have did at this point. But it, it seemed that he just didn't want to. He, he didn't reject it, but he didn't entertain any of the things that we were talking about. Yeah. So, which was just surprising because, I mean, I'm marveling at the amazing creation now and, and looking at different verses in the Bible compared to what I actually see. Yes. Um, uh, birds falling you know, to the ground and yeah. things like that. God feeds yeah. the birds and things. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, oftentimes we feel like slow to find things to praise God for. Uh, there's just things that we're just like wrestling with. And we just need to start by just looking around us at, at all that God has created. And that you'll, that's a lifetime of praise when you think about the infinite wisdom and majesty and glory of God. Just in the created order. It's good. Debbie. Absolutely. I mean, we're marveling at it now, right? Yeah. What will it be like then? Amen. Amen. Good stuff. Yeah, that, blue, that beautiful flower that you see, you come back 15 minutes later and it's wilted. Right? <laughs> it reminds you that we're not, we're not home yet. So, okay, good, good things there. Okay, let's take a look at point number two there on your outline. So, um, I, I can't remember who exactly put it this way, but they've kind of talked about the witness of God. And they've talked about it primarily in three ways. Creation, conscience, Christ. Um, so today is kind of creation, and now we'll look at conscience. Next week will be Christ. He witnesses to us in that. Like Say it again? Probably. Somebody wiser than I. Yes. They do? Okay, yeah. Okay, so the next point there on your outline says the Bible is not necessary for knowing something of God's character and moral laws. This is just slightly different from that for that first point, although there is overlap with it. And I want you to go ahead and turn with me to Romans 1. Because in Romans 1 here, 
Paul goes on to show that unbelievers who have no written record of God's laws still have in their consciences some understanding of God's moral demands. So look with me at Romans 1, and we'll just pick up at verse 24. Well, actually, let's back up to verse 22, because I'll pick up from where we left off on our, on our slide here. Looks a little out of focus. Sorry, I didn't check it earlier. All right, can I get somebody to read, starting at verse 22, down through verse 32? I'm going to do that, Mac. Thank you. Uh, professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the Yeah, that's, that is a powerful passage. And the conclusion of that is amazing there in verse 32, isn't it? Though they know God's righteous decree. I mean, just stop and think about that for a second. There, there's, there's this innate understanding because of the way that God has created us. That we know these type of things are worthy of death. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? That's why we should have so much confidence when we evangelize. Because we have within that person that ally of their conscience that we can testify to, that they know that these things are wrong. They, they know those who practice such things deserve to die, but they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Yes. Yeah. And that's right. That's right. That's entertainment. That's entertainment, yeah. That that's the insanity of sin. Right? That's that's the depth of our depravity. So that we can look at that and say, I know 
innately this leads to death, but I'm going to practice it and approve it at, at, at the same time. So, yeah, that's, that's a, good, a, good, a good point. So, we know that our sin is wrong, at least in part, and Paul goes on to kind of further amplify this when he talks about the activity of conscience, and he specifically re- refers here to Gentiles who do not have the written law. So look at Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. Actually, I have this up on the PowerPoint. All right, so let's take a look at this. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. And that law that's being referred to here is the written record of God's, of God's law. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So the the consciences of unbelievers bear witness to God's moral standards. But at times, this evidence of God's law in the hearts of unbelievers is distorted or suppressed. Sometimes their thoughts accuse them, and sometimes their thoughts excuse them, Paul says here. Now, what we want to understand also with this is that the conscience of unbelievers will be suppressed or hardened in various areas of morality depending on cultural influences and personal circumstances. I love how Wayne Grudem brings this out in his uh, systematic theology. He says, a cannibalistic society, for example, will have many members whose consciences are hardened and insensitive with regard to the evil of murder while modern American society, for example, exhibits very little sensitivity of conscience with regard to the evil of falsehood in speech or disrespect for parental authority or sexual immorality. Additionally, individuals who repeatedly commit a certain sin will often find the pangs of conscience diminishing after time. A thief may feel very guilty after his first or second robbery, but feel little guilt after his 20th. The witness of conscience is still there in each case, but it is suppressed through repeated wickedness. That being said, well, this comes comes out of some, that's the end of Grudem's quote there. Uh, So I think he hits on some really solid points there. And I was reminded of hearing missionaries testify how when they go into these unreached areas that have no gospel witness and they go into these what we might consider more primitive societies, they have within them some sort of legal system already functioning within that culture or society. Even though the word of God has not yet come into that society and penetrated it and taught them, there's this innate sense, because of creation, that they, they have a sense of justice, what's just and what's unjust. Now, now that's twisted and distorted, but it's there nonetheless, right? Like, this is wrong. You can't do that, right? Where does that, where does that come from? It's built in 
to every society which flows from the fact that we've been created in the image of God and that sense of justice is innate for us. So the knowledge of God's existence, of his character and moral law, which comes through creation to all humanity, is often called general revelation, right? Because it's generally revealed to all men. All men have a sense of that. It comes through observing nature, through seeing God's directing influence in history, through this inner sense of God's existence and his laws that he's placed inside every person. And if you've been out evangelizing and you've come across somebody who professes to be an atheist, you've probably had some type of discussion with them in this realm about right and wrong. Because for, for well, let's just think about that logically. Is it logical for an atheist to promote justice? If you don't think so, why not? Peter, I saw you shake your head. You want to? Is there no moral standard for him to go by unless he appeals to ultimately God's standard? That's right, right? So if, if, if we follow the line of evolution, if this is how we got here, and survival of the fittest, then, then there isn't, there's no right and wrong. Who says that that's right or that's wrong, right? But you'll notice when you're speaking with somebody who professes to be an atheist, they can get very charged up about certain issues. If you bring up, you know, I saw this report on TV last night about this guy who was a, a child molester, um, multiple offenses. Is that wrong? Yeah, that's wrong. Absolutely, that's wrong. Why is that wrong? Right? That, that's the question. I need. If, if we came from this... Well, that's just the strongest, right? The strongest. But we know innately that's wrong. So we can look at things, and even atheists will do this. They'll look at things and just say, that's wrong. And, and we can say, you don't have any, upon what standard are you basing that? You're contradicting your own worldview. <laughs> yeah, you're contradicting. That's right. That's right. Which is built in to us. Yes. Yeah, I've talked to That's right. That's right. Exactly. Which, which is built in, right? Right? To, to every one of us. So 
We, we see it all around us, and this is why the Word of God says there, there isn't any excuse. Nobody is going to be able to come to the judgment bar of God on the day of judgment and say, I've got an excuse, and here it is. Everybody's going to be without excuse. We have a sufficient witness in our conscience of the fact that God exists, and we know something of this God. So the fact that all people know something of God's moral laws we would definitely say is a great blessing for society. Amen? Right? That if we didn't have that, there would be no societal restraint on the evil that is around us um, that, that people would do. Um, but, but our consciences help us in that regard. There's that common knowledge of right and wrong. And because of that, we can find a lot of consensus with non-Christians, right? We can talk about moral civility, right? Uh, we, we can talk about uh, co- community standards, things like that, basic ethics for business practices, things of this. We can have, so, and, and that's because we've been created in the image of God. So we share that with every unbeliever. We've all been created in the image of God. However, it must be emphasized that Scripture nowhere indicates that people can know the gospel or know the way of salvation through such general revelation. We know that God exists, that He is our Creator, that we owe Him obedience, that we've sinned against Him. And to Amber's point earlier, that existence of the systems of sacrifice throughout ancient religions, throughout history, attests to the fact that these things can be clearly known by people apart from the Bible. But where the scripture becomes necessary, and Desmond will pick up on this next week, is how is it that the holiness and justice of God can be reconciled with his mercy and his love? How how does that happen? Creation can't tell us that, right? And our consciences can't tell us that. That's where we'll head... uh, next week as we launch into that. All right, any, any questions or comments here? We've got a few minutes left. D. You know, I find it easier to witness to atheists yeah. than it is to witness to non-Christians. Yeah. Because they're not going to Yeah. 
accepted. Yeah. Yes, they are. Yep. And at some point, I would hope that we have some input as to how to win this. Sure. Uh, by the Holy Spirit. Yep. It comes to a point where you, it, it's about faith mm -hmm. and the, uh, the gift of faith. Yep. Yes. Yes, I do. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that in, in a situation like that is the expectation to target that specific sin, right, to, to look at that. And I think this is where we go back and we can say we have common ground with every sinner because, and, and this will depend on a person's willingness to sit down with you and talk, and of course we want to be cordial in all ways and everything like that, but this is where we can go back and say, let me share with you what the Bible says about all mankind. And we can go back to our union with Adam. And because of our union with Adam, all of us are prone to sin. And it manifests itself in many different ways. So for you, I'm looking at the Bible and I'm saying this is, the, this is where you've gone with your life. This is what you've chosen to do. The Bible says that's sinful, so we're not going to back up on that. But here's, let me tell you about my life and what happened with me and my propensity. And this is where it led over here. And so there's that common ground because we have the same starting point. We were in union with Adam and because of our union with Adam, we, we go after various sins. Now certainly there are things that can influence that. Uh, typically, for example, let's say drunkenness. Um, if a child is raised in an environment where that's seen more readily, there's a probability that that child's going to follow in that, in that path. Um, so there are different influences that affect it, but none of it um, excuses us from, from dealing with the reality of it. So I think that's where we can kind of disarm people, especially in, over that topic because it's culturally so hot right now. Um, so I want to just point at that and be like, you're, you're you're a sinner and you need to repent. I want to find that common ground and say, let me share with you what the Bible says and then go from there and then say, and here's what God has done to remedy that situation. And so like 1 Corinthians 6 is a great example where you have that list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Homosexuality, homosexuals are, but so are adulterers, so on and so forth. And you can say, okay, so it's not singling that out Specifically, it's just categorizing and saying this is a form of unrighteousness. So are all these. And such were some of you. So you have the testimony of people who have come out of that. We've all come out of sin. What sin it was, we, we could probably go around the room and just say, what did you struggle with most as an unbeliever? And we have various testimonies. But that's the common ground that we can find with somebody in that because the expectation is, if this person who I know is a Christian finds out that this is the lifestyle I practice, they're going to come headlong for this sin only. And that's not the place I think we should start. It's, it, it's, it's the back, that's exactly right. Yes, because if that person, and this is where we have to be careful, if that person switches from a homosexual lifestyle 
to a heterosexual lifestyle and they're still unrepentant, we've done them no good. And in fact, we may delude them more into thinking that they're now that they're now right with God. So the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We have to trust that and we have to be wise in the way that we engage in those conversations. Yeah. I had an experience, several experiences, but so gay, and she brought that up right away. Yep. And I said, wait, let's put, let's park that, put it to one side first, yep. and let's continue. Let's make believe you didn't say that to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. And we didn't have to deal with that. Yes. Yeah, and she still, she still had to admit that she was a sinner. Yes. Before she was That's right. It. The the sin is just a manifestation that you are a sinner, exactly. right? And I have to get there. Amber. Okay. Yep. Real quick, because I know we got to go. Yep. Um, I don't know if you ever have heard of Our Lady of Rosaria. Oh, yes. yes. Absolutely. Yes. Great testimony. Ago, yeah. Yes. She told her testimony yeah. where she used to be a practicing homosexual, and she was very rebellious. Yeah. The um, Christian faith. Yep. And her family basically took her in with yep. Christians and witnessed to her, but not yeah. just, you know, here's the gospel. Yes. They yep. loved her. They yes. They got to know yep. her. Yep. Yeah, she's got it. Yeah, that, that's the first time I heard her was at the Ligonier Conference a couple of years ago. That was fantastic. But that's the power of God into salvation. Amen. Peter. Yes. 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 Where we don't have to focus on one thing like people right. and like a number yes. of against the Lord here. Amen. This is just a particular one that you favor. Yes. Amen. Excellent point. Man, I'd love to continue this discussion, but I have to take my own advice and get out of here and get into the sanctuary. <laughs> okay. So let me close and then if you guys want to hang for a few minutes, I'm gonna get chastised for this. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes. Yes. Amen. Still.
still a still a go to Texas, huh? <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Well, let's uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we've been able to uh, just think about these things. Uh, Lord, we we praise you and we thank you again for giving us eyes to see, ears to hear the truth of the gospel, Lord. Uh, I pray that you would help us to keep that into perspective in our own hearts first and foremost, and as we engage with people, Lord, who are outside of the kingdom, uh, Lord, that we would be compassionate, loving, and bold to see them come to know you, Lord God, always remembering um, that, that our sin is as serious in your sight as theirs that we would correct our opponents with gentleness, that we would be gentle to all men, that we would have that disposition, Lord. We, we pray for your grace toward us in that way, that your name would be honored. So we thank you for that. And we, we pray for longevity of relationships, as Amber sh shared about the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield, Lord. Help us not to just have a one-and-done mentality with evangelism. Uh, Lord, help us to be willing to engage in life-on-life life with people uh, that are around us. So we thank you for that. We do pray for Josh and Rachel, Father, as they head to Texas tomorrow. Father, we thank you so much for the blessing that they have been to this congregation. We're going to miss them dearly. Pray for them as they travel, that you would give them grace and mercy to get safely to Texas and to get uh, established in their new place that they'll be living and uh, get plugged into the church that is around them, Lord. Uh, for your glory, Father, we pray that you would uh, strengthen them and bless them. We thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.